All right. Thankfully, we are, I'm thankful anyway, that we are going through a theology series. I, I love theology. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a natural stream for me to swim in. I'm very comfortable in, in the theological pool, as deep as it might be. I love it. And I love that you all have asked questions of us. And the idea of the graphic is theology is just Anytime that anyone talks about God, anytime anyone has ideas about God, that is theology in its most simplest form. And as Dr. R.C. Sproul has said, everyone's a theologian. If you have thoughts about God, you have a theology. What we want for you as the elders, pastors, shepherds of Eternal City is to have good, solid, biblical theology. That's what we want. We want your theology to be rooted in the Word of God and to be in line with the Word of God. And so if this happens tonight, that some of your false ideas get get torn down and broken down, what we hope is that by the Spirit, the right structures in your thinking and in your foundation... um, would be built up by the word. And so tonight's question, uh, those of you who are in the membership class already know, you seven get a double dose. It is, is church membership biblical? Now, this is a question that might seem like, eh, church membership, is that really necessary to address? It is. Here's why. Church membership is not in the Bible. Like, there is no commands, you must be a church member. In fact, there is no even explicit term, church membership. Can't find it. And so for that reason, you know, we as a church are a heavy church membership church. In other words, we, we value church membership here. We want every person who calls Eternal City Church, their church, to be a church member. And so this is an important question, okay? Because if, if something doesn't show up in the Bible and you can't point to any text and say, look, here it says, you must be a member of a local church. And if membership as far as church is concerned, is not even in the Bible, then it is a good question, isn't it? Is church membership biblical? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to seek to answer this question again by asking four more questions. Here are the questions. Number one, what is church membership? Number two, what does the Bible teach about church membership? Number three, how do you practice church membership? And number four, how does church membership show the gospel? We will start with a definition. Now, this is the definition that you will find on your Gospel Center Community Discussion Guide. It is a helpful definition and is biblically accurate. So here it is. A formal relationship between a Christian and a local church. So the formalness means it's public. There's There's a way that it happens. And it's a relationship between an individual Christian and that individual Christian's local church, where the church affirms the Christian's faith, meaning I have a profession of faith as a believer. I say I belong to Jesus. He has forgiven my sins. I am united to Christ. The Father of Jesus is my Father. The Spirit of Jesus is indwelling me. That's your claim. That's your profession. We, as church leaders and church members, want to affirm that. We want that to be true, and we want to say, yes, amen, that's true of you. So the church affirms the Christian's faith and, in addition, oversees the Christian's discipleship. Now, Christian is 
synonymous with disciple. You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple, and you can't be a disciple without being a Christian. They are interchangeable. You can't have one without the other. The church exists to help oversee or to make sure it's happening to greenhouse, to miracle grow the discipleship of the church members. Not just the elders, not just the teachers, but every church member is involved in this oversight. The Christian then, so this is now the Christian's responsibility, the Christian then submits his or her discipleship to the oversight of the elders and the church, the other church members. So that's a a both and definition right there. Very helpful, very clear. Now we're going to seek to flush that out biblically. So we're going to move very quickly to uh, a lot of texts. As I said last week, all these theology questions are going to be grounded in scripture because scripture alone has ultimate authority. Not some theologian's opinion, not my opinion, not Eddie's opinion, not Justin's opinion. It's what does the Bible clearly teach on these questions? There's where the authority lies. So let's quickly read Philippians 3, 17 to 21, and we're trying to answer the question, what is church membership? Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitation is one of God's means for growth. Look at those who are walking according to the biblical standard and follow them. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. A mindset you set your mind on, only earthly things, not, not the spiritual realm, not the heavenly places. But, verse 20, here's, here's our verse, ready? But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, here's why verse 20 and 21 point to church membership. We, though living in this country, the United States of America, are citizens, most all of us in this room, yet our actual invisible citizenship resides in another place. So believe it or not, whether you like this or not, if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven first before you're an American citizen or a Ugandan citizen or whatever citizenship you might have if it's dual. So the idea is the local church now becomes an embassy, or a place, a local expression of that citizenship of which it represents. So you know what an embassy is, right? An embassy is if you go to any foreign land, say you go to Ireland on vacation, you want to see the green rolling hills and the shepherd and the sheep, and you want to drink Guinness, you know, right from the, from the source. Let's say you go to Ireland and, and you go to the United States Embassy. It's run by Americans. It's, it's American territory. It's, if you bomb it, you've assaulted the United States of America. Well, in that same sense, the local church, friends, every local church that's biblical is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, and we are awaiting the arrival of the king. 
and you saying, I am in that kingdom. That is my kingdom. Jesus Christ is my king. That needs to be more than just you saying that. And that's for your good. That's actually for your good. Because what if you think that be the case and it's not? Many are deceived. Many think they're on the road to heaven. Jesus tells us that many take the broad road that leads to destruction, yet they're at peace, they have no anxiety, and they think they're on the road that leads to heaven. And so church membership and the process of church membership is so beneficial and good for you because it allows those who are the representatives and leaders and biblical qualified shepherds of this local embassy, local church, to say, yes, we we believe you are if you will, a card-carrying citizen of heaven. And this local church is an expression of that kingdom. Where Jesus is ruling, there the kingdom is. And so we see Jesus ruling through his people, and this is a small example, though imperfect for sure, example of what the kingdom is like. And so we as a local church are a, a local expression And what we're saying in this imagery here is we are a part of that kingdom. All right. Who will? Jesus is coming to transform our lowly bodies and we will be like his body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Now, interestingly, when Jesus was ascending into heaven, we have a couple texts. We have Matthew 28 and we have Acts chapter 1. We don't know exactly when uh, Matthew 28 happened, but Jesus makes an outrageous claim. In Matthew 28, Jesus says this, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because of that, I want you to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey or observe all I've commanded, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now listen, if you're not united to a local church, Where does that discipleship happen? Of which Jesus commanded by all authority that it should happen. You see, discipleship is always connected to the local church. Jesus in Matthew 16 said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The way that Jesus builds his church is by individuals becoming disciples and those disciples being discipled, growing, and then those disciples spreading and receiving more disciples, making disciples, seeking disciples, and the continuation happens. Now, where does that happen? Does that happen in parachurch ministries, does that happen individually? Where is that supposed to happen? I will argue throughout this whole message that is supposed to happen through and connected to the local church. The local church is the central place of discipleship. And, and I'll just, I'll, I'll briefly back that. When, when the New Testament uh, launches the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, and they begin to plant churches and do missions throughout the Gentile world. They do evangelism, yes, but what we often don't realize is the immediate thing that happens next is a local church is established. And those believers are brought together to be a body, an embassy, an outpost of the kingdom of heaven where they can do life together and survive as strangers and aliens in a foreign land, as Peter would tell us. 
And so immediately upon evangelizing and seeking disciples, a local church is established. And then what is the next pattern? The next pattern is to see leaders raised up to give oversight and shepherding care and leadership to that church. That's what we see in Titus. Paul says to Titus in the first chapter, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, to establish leaders in every church. This was always the plan of God. Was to, so in other words, the mission of God is to establish local churches. And from there, disciples are not only created, but fostered, are grown, and some are sent out. And the work of being sent out is not random evangelism by which we just you know, take shots into the dark. No, we gather people and we gather them into the local church. That's the goal. That's how proper discipleship should work because Well, the body imagery is clear in the text, but we need to get there first. All right, Jonathan Lehman, who is the author of Church Membership, which is one of the required books for our church membership, the Little Blue Nine Marks books back there in the library if you wanted to take it for yourself. He's also the editorial director of Nine Marks, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. This definition is helpful. Membership is the church's affirmation that you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom, and therefore a card-carrying Jesus representative before the nations. To be a church member is to be affirmed by qualified leadership whom the scriptures put forth as the standard and then to be then recognized by that local church publicly and then that person who's publicly recognized can say yes and amen. It's not just me saying it, it's we saying it. We got, we got to be really careful of it's all about me. That is the danger zone for Christians. I know individualism and individuality has crept in to the church and our thinking such that it's the air we breathe and the water we swim in, but it's not biblical air and it's not biblical water, friends. It's always the we all through the Bible. It's always you connected to a local family, a local body. We're we're commanded to do good to one another. That's the one another of the local body. And then also those outside the household of faith. All right, let's move on. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 is the text I want to look at to answer um, another question. And the question we're answering now is, what does the Bible teach about church membership? What does the Bible teach about church membership? This is number two. Well, first of all, I think it's helpful to realize that this text in particular is teaching a few things. One, it's teaching about the capital C church, or we could say the universal church, and it points to the small C church or the local church. Now, to be a part of a local church is to also be a part of the capital C church. But what we are normally used to is, yeah, I'm a part of the capital C church, and I don't really need the small C church. It doesn't matter if I'm connected to a local church. You know, it doesn't really matter if I even go to church because I'm a Christian. I'm in the capital C church. I'm part of the universal church. But that is not biblical. That's your idea. You got that more from American individualism than you did from the Bible. And so we want to seek to tear that down. Now, this text talks about the universal church. There's a big B body of Christ, and there's a small B body of Christ. So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 to 19. But as it is, 
God arranged the members in the body. Now, he's using Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, is using the body as an image or a metaphor to describe the church. And it's a perfect image because your body has so many different parts, yet they all function to serve each other. And without the many parts, your body is handicapped or lacking, isn't it? So, so if you lose a hand uh, because you were in an automobile accident, you are severely impaired. Okay? And, and that's the idea. So in a local church, there are individual members, but yet they're connected to a body for the good of the whole body. This is how 1 Corinthians 12 works. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. In other words, God gets to choose which body part you are. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Okay. If all of you were teachers, preachers, imagine us all up here speaking and no one's out there. It's a dumb illustration, but you get it. As it is, there are many parts, that word could be translated members, many members, yet one body. And I love verse 27. Now you you, Corinthians, you, Eternal City Church, you are the body of Christ. That's identity language. You are this. You are the body of Christ. And individually, members of it. And there it is. So Christians, all of us, are members of the body of Christ. It's our identity. We're individually members of it. And we are this body. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, now, this text might seem a little confusing. Like, why are we talking about Hebrews 13, 17? But if you ask two questions about this text, church membership emerges immediately. Question number one, who or what leaders are you supposed to submit to? Any leader? How about Joel Osteen? or Benny Hen, or Creflo Dollar, or, you know, anyone that says, I'm a leader. Are you just supposed to submit because someone claims to be a leader? Submit to the teaching, submit to authority. Sub- For they are keeping watch over your souls. Who is keeping watch over your soul? That's the qualifier. You are to have some kind of leadership in your life, and that leadership is supposed to be caring for, overseeing, shepherding, greenhousing, fostering your soul. That's how church membership works. That's what is supposed to be happening. Now look from those leaders' perspective, as those who will have to give an account. Second question is for me. Who in the world am I going to stand before God and give an answer for? Those in Joel Osteen's church? Those in Benny Hen's church? Those in Creflo Dollar's church? How about the church that meets right over there down the street? Or the church that meets right over there? Am I going to stand before God before all these people that don't even know me? I've never shaken their hand. I've never prayed for them. I've never preached to them. I've never sat in their living room and talked. No, of course not. I'm going to give an account for specific people who have given me the privilege to shepherd them formally. 
I'm in. I will sign, if you will, the dotted line and say, you can shepherd me and I commit then to shepherding you. Otherwise, I'm not standing before God on your account. I'm sorry. I love you. But listen, if you're not going to submit, how in the world do I know what you're doing throughout the week? How in the world do I know what you're looking at on your phone? How in the world do I know how you're treating people? If you haven't said, yes, shepherd me, I'm in, I'm a part of this church. Make sense? So the two questions automatically put church membership up in lights, don't they? Who are you supposed to submit to to obey scripture? And who will the leaders of the local church have to give an account for? And then the, the, the exhortation is let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would not be an advantage to you. So in other words, if, if you would cooperate and make the shepherding enjoyable, that would be actually more beneficial for you. In other words, I would be, so if I was a shepherd, and the biblical imagery for pastor is shepherd, pastor's shepherd, pastor's shepherd sheep, I would be, be treating my sheep with much more care and concern and softness if it wasn't trying to bite me all the time, right? If I have this sheep that's always coming at me with its teeth out, what am I going to do? I'm going to be like, back up, man, like back up. What are you doing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my shepherd staff and I'm going to be swinging that thing, and I don't want to do that to you. Like, I don't want to metaphorically have to kick at you and swing the staff at you, right? The idea is th- there is a way that this could be joyful and beneficial for both of us. And I have not only been a shepherd of this church for five years, but I was a shepherd of a former church for another five years. So I have 10 years in, and there have been sheep that have bit me. <laughs> I understand that sheep bite, and yet you're still commanded to shepherd those sheep if they've committed. You see how this works? And I stick in there, and you stick in there. And that's how we grow. That's how our sin gets exposed. And if if the 99 are there and one has run away, you know what the shepherd's supposed to do? Leave the 99 and go after that one. But you know what? If you've never said I'm here and you disappear, I love you, but that's not on me. I love you, but that's not on me. You've never said I'm here, I'm committed, shepherd me. It's a plea and a biblical grounding for church membership. How about 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2? Now, this one is, is touchy, but it's perfect for our culture because we love edginess, okay? So 1 Corinthians 5 is, is, is just that edgy, lovely church membership passage. Paul has a situation in the Corinth church, Corinthian church, where a man has his mother-in-law in a sexual relationship, or maybe it's his stepmother. We hope and pray it's not his biological mother, okay? We don't know, but almost all scholarship would say it's got to be his mother-in-law or his stepmother, because if it's actually his biological mother, that's, that's just gone way too far. Maybe. But the situation is not good no matter what the case It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and that of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. You're the church in Corinth and you're tolerating something that the local Dionysians would not permit. What's up with that, Paul says? For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. 
Ought, ought you not rather to mourn? So, so they're boasting about their tolerance, right? Tolerance, you think tolerance is a new thing. We're so tolerant. We are the most tolerant culture ever. No, no. This is 2,000 years ago, and they were thinking they were the most tolerant culture ever. We just receive any kind of sexual expression. Paul's like, absolutely not. You, you do not just get to express your sexuality however you want in the church of God. We'll get to that in a moment. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't you be upset about this? Shouldn't you be grieved over this situation? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Obvious question is, how do you remove someone who's not in? Obvious, but it needs asked. And so, if you've never said, I'm here, shepherd me, I'm accountable, I profess to belong to the kingdom of heaven and to the king of heaven, how can you be removed from something that you're not actually a part of? Here's the rest of that text. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay? Now notice I skipped some verses because I wanted to get to this. Because this is important for me and for you to understand how you're to operate as a Christian in this world and how we as church leaders are to operate in this world. I wrote to you in my letter. Not, now, this letter was probably prior to 1 Corinthians, a, a lost letter from Paul to the Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he qualifies it. Look, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Look how he's making the distinction. You have sexually immoral in the world. Then you have people in the church. So it's those who are a part of church membership who are actually enrolled, enlisted, covenanted members of the local church and if they are acting out and living in sexual immorality, you're not to associate with them. In other words, that's what church discipline is. You need to handle that, Corinthian leaders. But he's saying not at all meaning those who are not a part of the church. Or the greedy, swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. The whole world is that. I'm not commanding you to disassociate like the Amish and pull back and isolate. But now I am writing you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, or even to eat with such a one. End of verse 11 there. To eat with people was to say, you're, you're my people. I'm in fellowship with you. We are in good standing. So if they're in church membership, and they are claiming, remember, you have a profession of faith. You're saying, I belong to Jesus. I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's your claim. If you're claiming that, and yet there's these things that are characterizing your life, the church, not just the leaders, but the other members are to say, for your good, we are to disassociate with you so that you might see that what you're involved in is serious and it should stop. And we are now going to disassociate with you until there's some active repentance in your life. Now look at this. Verse 12 is so helpful. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church 
whom you are to judge? That doesn't mean the building. Church is not a building. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here's what's happening, friends. Now, now this, is, this is so helpful for our missionary, missional strategy. We could bring the sexually immoral into this building in abundance, seeking to evangelize and disciple them. Right? It's not about having them in a building. No, it's have, having them enter into formal, shepherding, discipling, covenanted relationship with the church. And so in that way, this room right now during this worship gathering could be full of greedy, idolatering, sexually immoral people, and we would be doing the right thing by not only allowing them to be here, but encouraging them to be here and reaching out to them in love and faith. However, you enter into church membership, that's a different story. And so what we've done, even in our local church, we've bumped up against this where people are living in in obvious sexually immoral lifestyles. We've said, you should not become a church member because immediately we would have to start doing discipline. We, We would have to start getting you out of this situation. We would immediately have to disassociate with you. And so you, we, we've used it as a mission strategy to say, okay, we can, we can evangelize, shepherd, and disciple, disciple you in this situation in a different way than we would if greenhouse, care for, disciple, shepherd someone who's in church members. Does that make sense? And so for me, that is great clarity, and I hope for you that is great clarity. Christians are to be among the immoral, the greedy, the idolaters, and they are to be reaching out to them in love and caring for them and sacrificing for them. Because how do you know if their profession is real or not? You will know them by their fruits. And so the job of the, of the elder, of the pastor, of those doing the, the membership interviews is to assess the credibility of the person's faith and then shepherd and care for them. Now, this is all resting on a presupposition. What's the presupposition? The presupposition is sin is actually bad and harmful and it will kill you and it lies about its benefits. That's the presupposition. So we actually believe that. We believe that the wages of sin is death, and it will not only destroy you eternally, but it'll it'll destroy you in the now. It has death-like consequences for you here and now. And so the best thing for you is to get all the sin out of your life that you possibly can. And so you're moving further and further away from death. And as you move further and further away from death, you're moving towards life and light. Yet, we as Christians, we plunge into the world, into the death zone every day, don't we? Into hell itself, in a sense, every single day. And that is our mission. Do you see the distinction? I hope you do. Let's go further. Let's answer this question now. Let's move on from, is church membership Biblical. Now, now listen, there's no way to say everything you could possibly say in a 45-minute sermon. You realize that, right? I'm pulling out some of the best texts. We could spend hours on this sermon. I'm trying to keep it under one. Okay, so give me a break. How do you practice church membership? Question number three. Theo's back there looking at me with an evil eye. Give me a break, bro. Give me a break. 
How do you practice church membership? Let's answer question three. Ephesians 4 is really helpful for answering this question. And we're just going to stay in this little section of scripture to answer this question. Now, Ephesians uh, assumes something here. This is a letter to a local church or a network of local churches, and, and they are a part of a body. Okay? Now, the body metaphor is used here, and the building up of the body is used here. And so, what, I'm going to tell you what it is on the front end, then we'll use the Bible to, to pull that apart or unpack it. Your practice as a church membership, how do you practice it? You are to build up with words and with deeds your other members of the local church. That's how you practice it. You serve them and build them up with the gifts and talents and abilities and time and treasures that God has given you. And by doing this, the world will look in and say, oh, they're disciples of Jesus. Didn't Jesus say this in John 13? The world will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. It's a mission strategy, actually. It's a witness to the watching world. So Ephesians 4, uh, 11 talks about the, the, the structure or the gifts of leadership that God gives to the church to, to build up the church. Look, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers for what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. All right, let's just stop there. Verse 12. The the leaders of the church, and we could look at these, you know, we, we went through Ephesians, and when we did this text, as we exposited that book, we talked about archetypes, and we talked about uh, small p prophets, and small e evangelists, and small p pastors, and you have giftings towards one of these um, five areas. But let's, let's not talk about that for a moment. Let's just look at evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for a moment, and their job is to equip equip the saints, every Christian who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. My identity is I'm connected to Jesus. Therefore, I'm a saint. Their job is to equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. What's the work of ministry? For the building up the body of Christ, the local church. Until so we, we do this until something happens. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, you remember Romans 8, 29. It says, you were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. This is why you were saved. So that manhood is not maleness necessarily. It's Jesusness. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus whether you're a male or a female. It's his character and his quality. It's the way he loved people. It's the way he engaged people. It's the way he sacrificed himself for people. That's what you're to be transformed into. How does that happen? The saints who have been equipped by the leaders are to do that work among the other members. That's how it happens. That's the model. Let's move further. So that, so that, that produces something, so that, we may no longer be children. So God doesn't want us children. He doesn't want us immature Christians. He wants us to grow up. What does being a child in the faith look like? 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's, there's no solidness to you. If you will, if I could change the metaphor, you're so light. You're like a, you're like a dried up leaf in the wind. You know, fall happens here in Pittsburgh and the leaves fall and, and there's a, a, a gust of wind and it, sh- and it takes the weed. You're, you're like that if you're a child. Here's a teaching over here about prosperity. Here's a teaching over here about miracles. Here's a teaching over here about healing. Here's a teaching over here about Jesus might not be God. And here's a teaching over here about, and you're just blown every which way. And there's no solidness to you. You don't have a rock to stand on. And so the job of the church is to help you get solid and so solid that when the wind of falseness blows on you, you just stand up to that wind and take it. Just take the wind. It can't blow you over. The wave comes crashing on you, and you don't break in the wave. The wave breaks over you. That's maturity. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, there's a lot of schemeful, conniving leaders out there, friends. You've seen them on TV, you've seen them be exposed. Rather, speaking the truth in love. So this is what should happen now. What should we do? If we're not going to be blown around, what should we do? We should speak the truth to one another in love. And as we do that, listen, we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Remember that body image? We are the body of Christ, individually members of it. Who's the head of the body? It's Jesus Christ. He's the head from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, there's a picture of maturity and there's a picture of a healthy local church. Each part, each member is working properly, operating in their gifting, serving one another, selflessly caring for the needs of others more than their own needs. When every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. I love this. So that it builds itself up in love. So the context is love. And by we acting as church members, we actually build up the church. We strengthen one another. We love on one another, sacrifice for one another, do all the one another's of the New Testament, and we build each other up. Here's John Lehman again. Membership helps you to know which Christians on planet earth you are specifically responsible to love, serve, warn, and encourage. It enables you to fulfill your biblical responsibilities to Christ's body. So you may think you're this, but you're actually not called to police all the other Christians on the globe. You might have taken that responsibility upon yourself you know, commenting on everyone's posts and, you know, thinking you're the guardian of Christ in his word. We are to lovingly act in that role within a body. And I understand social media has enabled us to, to quote unquote, have a platform to the whole world. But listen, you are to lovingly care for one another. This is the context. And remember, if the truth is to be spoken, truth often has a painful element to it. You know, have, you, have any of you ever heard the phrase that the only time people tell the truth is when they're being sarcastic? You've never heard that phrase. 
Okay. I've heard that phrase and I've tried to observe to see if it's true. And I think it's maybe 80% true. You know, sarcasm is a good way to get the truth out in a, in a humorous kind of way. We should be ones who have such, listen, solid identities in Jesus that if, if Theo came to me and was like, bro, I, I see this in your life and this is not good. Like, what, what can we do? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? What can we do to see you improve in this area? I should not be like, who do you think you are? You know, give them a shove back up. You know, I should, no, rather I should be like, bro, thank you so much for being willing to risk offending me and actually come at me in a, in a proper, humble, and helpful way, seeking my good. But most of us would not have that attitude if that happened, would we? No, we would, we would stiff arm we would, you know, if we were cats, the fur would stand up on the back of our, our backs. We would arch, you know. No, but, but in, in biblical church membership where there's healthy, loving relationships, you welcome the, the loving correction that is supposed to be for your upbuilding. So if you see me catch an attitude with my wife, not only would my wife appreciate it, but I should appreciate it that you would be like, yo, the way you said that, the what you said there, that was not okay. And I love you and I love her. And you don't want me to smack you, do you? Like, come on. And, and so we should be able to do that in loving relationships. The context would be church membership. Here's that verse I alluded to earlier. And now we are um, answering the last question with three minutes and 33 seconds left. How does church membership show the gospel? How does church membership show the gospel? Here it is. A new commandment I give you. This is Jesus just after he has washed the disciples' feet. You know, he is, he is the Lord of glory, has served his disciples in such a way where he took the lowest position of, of a slave in that context, and he washed their dirty feet. And he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now remember, he just stripped down, put a towel around him, and washed their nasty feet, which was a common courtesy in those days where sandals and dust and dirt, you know, you would come, it's like taking your shoes off when you come to someone's house. So he did that for them, and then he exhorts them, I just gave you an example. You are to humbly serve one another just like I served you. And by this, verse 35, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Who's the one another? What's the context for the one another? Well, yeah, you could say it's Christians in general, and that would be fair. But I think more specifically, it's within the local church. More specifically, these are the people who are right in your midst and prayerfully, if you're participating in the structures that we've created for you, you're meeting with this local church regularly, not just maybe once a week here in this gathering, but once a week in homes and maybe further in restaurants and in other places. And you are able to communicate through texts and through phone calls, and, and you're able to do this, to love one another. And then the loving one another can be done in such a way that it's in front of others who are outsiders and they can look in and say, wow, wow, these people are Jesus' disciples. Look at the love they have 
for one another. Here's the next part of Ephesians 4, and I got one minute and 19 seconds to do this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Look at this. As God in Christ forgave you. Now listen, if we're in a local church and it's a legitimate local church and you're in legitimate community in that local church, you are going to offend one another. Just like if you're in legitimate marriage, you're going to offend the other partner. If you're in a family context, think about your household growing up with your brothers and sisters, or think about your children. There is offense all the time, every day, right? It's like, man, you offend me four or five times an hour. <laughs> and, and the idea is you, you have to practice forgiveness if these relationships are going to continue. What most often happens in families and in churches is one offense happens and it's like, I can't stand you. I will not forgive you. And pretty soon you disappear because of the offense. No, but the idea is just like at the end uh, of the Lord's prayer, forgive us our trespasses just as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the very next verse is, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, my Father in heaven will not forgive you your trespasses. Now, that is not saying that if you're a Christian and legitimately born again and regenerate and in the kingdom, you can lose that status. What it's saying is if you don't understand what it cost Jesus Christ to take upon your sin, your debt that you owed to God, morally speaking, and pay that debt in full on the cross with his body on the tree, bleeding to death, giving up his spirit, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and it is finished. The sin that that, that, that came from your life that was put on the Son of God, if you don't realize how expensive that was, a cost to pay, then it will be hard for you to pay the small debts that others owe you. That's what that means. It, it, it's the same thing as when Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. We've all been forgiven much, but you may not think it. You may think, yeah, I had this little debt. And so you were self-righteous and you don't, you don't think God really even needed to send Jesus to die for your sins because you pretty much have it covered, Right? I'm pretty good, you know? The idea is if you know how foul you are, just look inside. You know how much Jesus has forgiven you. And then the understanding of the depth of forgiveness given you in Jesus will enable you then to forgive others. And that's what it says. Look, this is in the context of the local church. We're to be doing all these things to certain people, living this out, and to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and if you're going to be in church membership, you need to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. There's the key. So how does church membership 
relate to the gospel, it's essential. One, it's essential to getting in. We come by way of the cross into the body of Christ. And to stay an active and healthy member in a local church, you need the cross. Not only to continually forgive your sins and to cleanse you, but then to enable you to forgive others and to release them of their debts that they owe you because you will be offended. People will owe you. And that's how this works.